Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel 13, 1 through 29. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother's Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down in your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat it from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me but he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. 
But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Um, It is good to be with you and study scriptures, even uh, ones like this. And so if you're new to North Cross, thank you for coming. And if you've been here again, we're glad to be with you here again. Uh, This morning, we are continuing that sermon series that we started in the fall. uh, And it's told in the latter half of the book of 2 Samuel. I hope to finish by the summer's end. Uh, So light at the end of the tunnel. As we've said uh, last week, there are really good historical and scriptural reasons to study the life of King David. Uh, In many ways, he's important to the plot of both world history and uh, the Bible. But as we saw, and and so clearly this morning in this passage, the takeaway of David's life cannot be, be more like David. (laughs) Just can't. If David is our best example, or even our hero that we trust in, we are destined for disappointment. His words, his actions, even his legacy all fall so short. We need a better David, the son of David who doesn't just inspire us, but rescues us. We need King Jesus. And this is why our sermon series is titled, The God After Our Own Hearts. But before we step into David's story and the disaster and the deliverance there, would you pray with me for our time together in God's words to us this morning? Father, um, these are really um, bare and difficult words. And it's difficult to look into the, the darkest pockets of life and this world Um, and we confess our fear and we confess our confusion but we also confess uh, that you are a truth teller that you listen and you hear everything every part and every utter of your creation and we pray that you'd help us to have those ears to hear as you hear, to see as you see. And would you help us to hear and to see even this passage this morning um, in line with you? Lord, help us to behold you, to become more like you. Jesus, would you be high and lifted up? Would you be more believable and beautiful even in the midst of such a dark setting? And we ask this by your spirit and in your name, Jesus. Amen. So if you were to walk into my home on any given day, the last six months, 
you would likely hear the soundtrack to the Hamilton the Musical blaring. Just would be what was happening. Uh, and likely a few of us would be singing the words that we have by now memorized. <laughs> Uh, recently, I was once again listening to Hamilton, and I connected the dots, and this inspiration took me down a Wikipedia rabbit hole <laughs> that was to end all rabbit holes, uh, but which does relate to 2 Samuel chapter 13, I do promise. Uh, so let me get there. Let, uh, I'm going to take a step back, though, and extremely briefly summarize uh, the plot to the musical Hamilton. Uh, really, it's just Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton, a founding father of the United States, the first secretary of the federal treasury. And it's set to this amazing music. It's lyrically just really impressive. By, and Lin-Manuel Miranda does those honors all by himself, which is amazing. And much of the musical story is told from the perspective of not Alexander Hamilton, but his friend turned bitter rival and eventually assassin. Aaron Burr Jr. Perhaps this is not surprising then that the story kind of summits uh, near the end with that deadly duel between Alexander and Aaron, the, a, a duel called by Aaron Burr after a hotly contested presidential election where Alexander Hamilton weighed in in favor against him and they kind of got into a verbal dispute in the papers. But this moment when Burr shoots Hamilton dead should actually be really surprising to us, especially when we consider who Aaron Burr Jr.'s parents and grandparents were. Aaron Burr's granddad was the famous pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards, whom Lin-Manuel Miranda unfairly calls a fire and brimstone preacher. Just gonna put that on the record. That's unfair. Okay. Further, Jonathan Edwards' daughter, Esther Edwards, married a man who was a friend of Jonathan Edwards named Aaron Burr Sr. And Aaron Burr Sr. Is a, was a notable Presbyterian minister and founder and then second president of Princeton Theological Seminary. So the question becomes, how did Aaron Burr Jr., the child and grandchild of such devout and intelligent Christians, become famous for murdering a man? After all, that's what he did. As culturally as accepted as it may have been, Burr decided to kill a man over a non-endorsement, over harm to his reputation. And biblically, we cannot justify bodily murder by claiming injured pride. Hamilton's friends, his family, our country lost a life due to Aaron Burr's fragile ego. And really the question of how do we get from a famous man of faith to his murderous son is not just a question for the Burr family. It's also a question for David and Absalom. It's a question that makes all of us pause and think about our legacy. The legacy we leave in our schools or our jobs, our churches, our families, our local communities. The parents and future parents in this room will think about the legacy that we leave the way we can do so much good and so much evil to our children. The children in this room, that's all of us, by the way, no matter how old we are, we need to pause and ask about the legacy that we receive. What family values, what family practices do I want to keep and treasure? And what are those things that I 
picked up from my family that don't line up with the Bible's truth and love and do not need to continue in my life's work and be passed to future generations. And so 2 Samuel chapter 13, with all of its awful family violence and wreckage, this passage makes us ask, what unhealed wounds, family or otherwise, are running my life? What unhealed wounds are running our lives? And what's my legacy? What am I passing on? Thankfully, America did not end with Aaron Burr Jr.'s murder of Alexander Hamilton, and the Bible does not end with what Amnon did to Tamar and Absalom did to Amnon. Instead, God the Father intervened, and and God has entered this scene with love and with justice. What Aaron Burr Sr. couldn't do for his son and what King David wouldn't do for both of his sons and his daughter, God does. It's so amazing. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, we see by his absence, God's fullness as a father. He's not mentioned, but we see it in David's shortcomings. And by the way, these failures of love and justice spiral out into increasing violence and death. But to highlight this dynamic, we need to walk through the story using the following outline. First, verse one, we'll take a step back and we're gonna ask, how did we get here? How did we get here? Verse second, verses one through 22, we're gonna look at the legacy of lust without love. And then third, verses 20 through 29, we're gonna look at the legacy of anger without justice. You can find these points with the verses on the slide behind me or in your e-bulletin. Let's begin with verse one and let's look at a take a deep question, take a deep breath question. How do we get here again? Verse one reads, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar and after a time, Abnon, David's son, loved her. Perhaps at first this verse doesn't seem like it deserves a whoa with our hands in the air. But like the son and grandson of two of the most famous Christian ministers in colonial America killing another man, verse one should be surprising if not shocking. Our passage's narrator is quite deliberately drawing our attention to a trap that is about to spring. David has multiple children by multiple wives, and this leads to a half-brother, Amnon, and his sexual desire to have his half-sister, Tamar, as well as Amnon's half-brother, Absalom, and his angry desire to kill his half-brother, Amnon, for the sake of his full sister, Tamar. If that sounds confusing, it's supposed to be confusing. (laughs) But as much as chapter 13 tells us from the beginning, there is actually so much that's left unsaid in this passage. Really, our passage this morning is a clinic about how to read narrative and scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Yes, what Amnon does to Tamar and then Absalom does to Amnon in return, both are awful and are really graphic but the Bible takes pain to describe real life accurately as it is. This is not the kid's bop version of reality. But notice the significant lack 
of psychological and moral contemporary uh, commentary, excuse me. There's no asides by the narrator. <laughs> For instance, the narrator doesn't tell us what Tamar is thinking or feeling when she's sexually assaulted. The narrator does not sh does actually just shows us what Tamar thinks and feels. We see it in her ash-smattered hair, her torn clothing, her loud weeping, and even the way she tenderly lays her hand on her head. And the narrator doesn't tell us what to think and to feel about this episode or the one between Absalom and Amnon. Instead, we're purposely drawn in to make moral judgments for ourselves. Like many of the Old Testament narratives, 2 Samuel rarely gives us the answers to the questions that we have. What's good and what's bad here? What's right or what's wrong? It assumes that we can work those out by reading the story. Just so interesting because by reading it in its bigger context, we can work out that the evil of this domestic scene is a direct result of Nathan's prophecy in chapter 12. After David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, Nathan says, through, Nathan says this, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And what's more, this bloody ending to the scene highlights how sins, even forgiven sins, can have consequences, clear consequences. Second Samuel 13's the second installment and King David's fourfold penalty for murdering Uriah. David will end up losing four of his sons total. Amnon is just number two. But circling back to verse one, and Amnon's lust for his sister by another mother, we are also drawn in to make moral judgments about a popular cultural practice of that day, polygamy. Nowhere does it say in the Bible, David's practice of marrying more than one wife is evil or a sin, because the text does not have to say that. It's so obvious. <laughs> uh, it's, it shows it. Amnon is, is loving his sister as if she was not related to him. Absalom is killing his brother as if he were not related to him. And so while marrying multiple wives may have been a widely accepted cultural practice in the ancient Middle East, it was an immoral practice that led to awful consequences. And the same was true for Aaron Burr, right? And dueling, settling your verbal disputes by pacing off 10 steps, turning and shooting to kill was a popular cultural practice just a couple hundred years ago, but it's also extremely unbiblical. Yet according to historians like Yuval Harari, many self-proclaimed Christians papered over thou shall not kill with chivalry. It's better to die than to live with shame. If someone questions your honor, only blood can wipe out the insult. And so Alexander Hamilton was wiped out from the face of this planet. What are the popular practices that we in Lake Norman do not question? <laughs> Whose truths outshout the scripture in our life? Politics, fashion, what about those truths that are, quote unquote, that are believed by both us and them? It's what the Republicans, the Democrats agree on that has some of the worst consequences and they're hardest to see as immoral. For instance, 
It's what almost all 21st century Americans do to commitments, like marriage, friendship, church, in the name of individual freedom and better shopping options. That's what is going on. Have we thought about that and what those consequences are? But let me return, that's just a thought, there's probably many others, but let me return on how from its first verse, our passage answers the question, how did we get here? Second Samuel chapter 13 is the fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy, yes, and it's also a consequence of David's practice of polygamy, true, and finally chapter 13 comes from children watching their parents. That's what's going on here, isn't it? Our legacy. Amnon watched David lust after a forbidden woman and take her no matter the cost. He thought, that's a good idea. Absalom watched David hatch a patient, clever plot to kill somebody who threatened his world, Uriah, by another person's hand. And Absalom thought, that seems to work. Families don't just pass on genetic material we pass on a way of dealing with the world. Parents are always communicating to children, often unintentionally, often without words. What were the things your family communicated you need, no matter what the human cost? What are you communicating to your family about how to deal with threatening people in a threatening world? And so it's an easy transition to our second and third points on your outline, the legacies that David leaves his sons. Amnon and Absalom receive these legacies loud and clear. We're gonna begin with point two, verses one through 22, David's legacy, how he treated Bathsheba, right? Of how he, the David's legacy of how he treated Bathsheba and it's picked up by Amnon and how he treats Tamar. Love without lust. I'm sorry, lust without love. Lust without love. And verses one through two, Amnon is more tempted, more than tempted by his half-sister Tamar. He's positively obsessed by her. He was so tormented that it made, he made himself ill, is what the text tells us. But Amnon has a counselor named Jonadab, and he does what David should have been doing for his own son. Do you see that? Jonadab notices that Amnon's not doing well, and he kind of asks after him, where's David doing that? Nowhere. And sadly, um, we see in verse four, Amnon gives the reason. In the original Hebrew language, it's really powerful. There's a lot of eh and ah sounds that give Amnon's confession sort of a gasping quality, fitting for its secrecy, its passion, and its twistedness. And Jonadab, hearing this, crafts a plan for Amnon to get what he wants, to manipulate David and Tamar, his sister and his father, so that he, Amnon, can take what he wants and so that um, Amnon can do this despite Tamar's strong protests. It's so important to listen in this passage to Tamar, the victim. So important. This is something Amnon failed to do at the time, and so many failed to do afterwards. Hearing and taking the words of wounded women seriously is why Take Back the Night and Me Too movement are so important. It's the dignity of those movements. 
one of the biggest privileges in my ministry has been to sit with women and hear the stories of sexual assault. It is heartbreaking, but it's exactly where healing begins. And so the statistics and the stories tell us that you've either experienced something like Tamar experienced, or you know someone who has. And so I'd encourage you to either find a safe person and tell your story, or to be a safe person and listen closely when someone shares. And hearing and sitting with Tamar's words is also important in this passage for us to understand it. Her words tell us exactly what's wrong with Amnon and what's wrong with what he did. In verse 12, Tamar clearly says no and calls Amnon's intentions godless outrage. That, by the way, is a very weak translation of, and I added godless, by the way. It's a very weak translation still of what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew is meant to be a verbal slap in the face, says one commentator. But in the words of another commentator, Dale Davis, Amnon has neither ears nor heart. And soon his love, quote unquote, reveals itself as what it truly is, lust. Then Amnon hated her, so he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon expressed the strong feeling with strong words, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. This expression is even stronger and colder in the original language in the Hebrew. It's not put this woman out, it's put this one out. It's put this thing out of my presence. Amnon's actions and language show the selfish way he has made his sister into a stranger, a stranger into an object. A she becomes an it, a thing to him. Tamar is to be used and thrown away without regard for her present emotions or future dignity. Tamar is later described in verse 21 as a desolate woman, her life ruined, her person diminished. But Tamar lives out her days in her brother Absalom's house, not her father David's house. Did you notice that? Why is that? Verse 21 tells us why. It's likely that she no longer felt safe, but it's also definite that she no longer felt cared for. Verse 21, David heard all of these things about Tamar, his daughter, the wailing in the aftermath, is her desolation, and he was very angry. That makes sense. But he did nothing. Amnon was not punished. Tamar was not defended, nor restored. What in the world? Was it because of David's favoritism for his firstborn son and future heir to the throne, Amnon? Was it because David saw the whole thing as just a disturbance more than an injustice and he just wanted his peaceful house back and please, please don't let this get out into the ancient Israelite Twitter feed? Or was it because David saw his own lust at all costs so nearly and so dearly in his son Amnon and he was paralyzed by what he had done 
and couldn't undo. We don't know. But we do know that David's love failed. He was passive as a king. He was absent as a father. And that resulted in two years thick with silence, a silence that was only ended by Amnon's murder. So just like his father Amnon saw and took what was not his with a sense of entitlement, he is David's son. And while I have not done, I've not done what Amnon did, as I get older, I do think about what I received from my father about sex, how to handle that gasping, sometimes grasping desire inside of all of us. Where did it come from? How did my father handle it? Quietly, privately, with an overcoat of responsibility, like everything else in his life? And what about when things get out of control? Just yesterday, in the heat of my garage, I was moving some furniture, and a piece of furniture broke. And I heard myself get angry, just like my father used to get angry in our home garage. And I wondered, what about when the stakes are higher? And it's no longer broken furniture, but it's a desolate sister, and a silent king, and a drawn out injustice. How would I have handled myself then? And so we begin to see this situation, how Absalom handles Amnon, a legacy picked up from his dad about how David handled Uriah, anger without justice. Our third and final point, verses 20 through 29. In the full aftermath of his full sister's Tamar's sexual assault, Absalom protects and he tries to comfort his sister. He gently asks after her situation in verse 20 and then suggests her to hold her peace, not because he's telling her not to speak, but because Amnon is their brother, David's firstborn. And from this point onward, Absalom has no faith in David. He has no faith in David's willingness to administer justice, to punish wrong and to restore right. And so Absalom devises a plan to bring justice on his own terms. The plan recognizes Amnon as a threat to, the, to his, Absalom's emotional well-being. And so Absalom, just like his father did with Uriah, manipulates those around him, including servants and David himself, to order Amnon's death, accomplished in verse 29. And David, who is such a skilled politician, such a decisive general, is such a pushover father in this passage. In verses 20 through 29, he can't even be bothered to care. He won't decide for justice, even for the life of his own son Amnon, let alone for his daughter Tamar. But just like Amnon's solution to desiring Tamar isn't love, Absalom's solution to Amnon isn't justice. Butchering your slightly drunk half-brother at a sheep-shearing festival is far from justice. <laughs> He punishes Amnon with death, but he doesn't do anything to restore Tamar's um, desolation. So like father, like sons. From David, Amnon learned to lust, but not to love. And Absalom learned anger, but not justice. And likewise, no matter how old you are or, what, or, or where and what your parents did and didn't do, we all go through life feeling like we're missing some big pieces right? 
I appreciate the way that Lin-Manuel Miranda puts it in that musical Hamilton. Uh, his Aaron Burr sing this song, my favorite song, by the way, Wait For It. Uh, speaking of his parents who orphaned him at a young age, he sings, when they died, they left no instructions, just a legacy to protect. That's how so many of us feel. <laughs> we're looking for justice and we're looking for love and we have no idea. There's no instruction manual left for us from teachers and parents and mentors. But let me point you in the direction that this passage is at pains to point you. God is a father. He's looking for you. He's the only one who has justice and he has love. Listen to what he promises David and his sons in 2 Samuel 7, verses 14 through 15. Just a few chapters before, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will never depart from him. Do you hear that balance of what fatherhood is, what parenting is? God says, no, you can't have your way all the time. There's limits, there's discipline, there's justice. And God also says at the same exact time, yes, I still love you. Even then, there's love, there's embrace. He's still here. But God does not have to tell us about love and justice. He shows it to us. Out of an abundance of love and justice, God sent Jesus into the world, the world of 2 Samuel 13, this world, our world. And he endured earthly horrors. Like Tamar, Jesus' robe was torn and bloodied and stripped off, and he cried out in the tears to God his Father, why have you forsaken me? I'm desolate. Like Amnon, he offered wine, and then he was killed in cold blood on a cross. He was a sheep, and he was butchered, the very lamb of God. And Jesus endured all of these things out of love in order to accomplish justice for us. He paid the penalty for our sins, the ways we lust, how we make others the objects of, and to serve ourselves, not even hearing their pleas for mercy. The times our anger feels murderous and how carefully we plot out our personal revenge. And so God is not passive. God is not absent. He is just and he is loving us even now. And so we behold him and we become more like him in a community, surrounded by full spiritual brothers and sisters. Even in this room, each of us possessing bits of love and justice from God our Father that together make quite an instruction manual. When terrible things happen to us, or even around us to those we love, when we're Tamar, or even Absalom looking into the eyes of desolation across the breakfast table every morning, we can so quickly ask ourselves, what is a life worth to you, God? And God, with tears in his eyes, points to the cross and says, everything. That's what a life is worth, everything. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this passage, as hard as it is. Thank you for your gospel that speaks into it. 
I pray that you'd help us with all the things that this stirred up um, to take them to you, take them to people we trust, to be people who are trustworthy. Help us to be a people of love and justice, to care about the things that you care about. Help us to be like you, Father, as your sons and daughters, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen.